the proliferation of Old Testament names in this text that if I asked somebody to read this text for me, I might never see them again. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to read the text this morning. It's unusual, uh, but uh, (laughs) and I'm sure that my pronunciation isn't any better than any of yours would be. But let's hear the word of God from Matthew, chapter one, uh, verses uh, one through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Aminadab and Aminadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, so easy. You know our hearts. It's so easy for us to read this list and to think it has nothing to do with our lives. When in reality, it has everything to do with our lives. It's a line of hope. Because you made it a line of hope. And it's a line of hope that stretches into this room And there are, there are people in this room already, scores of them, who have been grafted by your grace into this line of hope. And we bless you for it. We pray that you would show us today, the King, whom we have grown to love, that you would show him to us with greater clarity. 
And we pray for those who have not yet been grafted into that line of hope. That you would do that gracious work today in them and for them. And that you would give them the gift of a new heart and repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we, we are uh, marking two uh, new beginnings. Uh, one is uh, it, that it's the first Sunday in Advent, uh, which is always a, a rich season in the life of our church. And the second a new beginning is that we're beginning a new sermon series uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, so let me give you a little background explanation. Why Matthew? Um, and there are really two reasons. First, why a gospel? Uh, and the short, uh, very non-clever answer to that is we've never done a gospel together. How's that? So then the question becomes, okay, so you picked, uh, you picked one of the four gospels. Why Matthew? Why would Matthew work for us? Well, as I looked back over the last number of months, as I thought and prayed about the subjects that we've emphasized and thought about together over the last several years, and really longer than that, really the whole time uh, that I've been at Emmanuel, uh, one of the areas that I have not helped us uh, focus on well is the kingdom of God. And out of all of the four Gospels, Matthew is preeminently, you know, all four Gospels are about the kingdom of God in one way or another. But Matthew preeminently is the gospel of the kingdom. If you look at Matthew, just on the raw data, uh, Matthew mentions the theme of the kingdom of God explicitly uh, way more than any of the other gospels. Uh, By my very imperfect count, it'd be a good thing for you to do today, actually go through the gospel, um, or later this week or in the next uh, ten years, uh, go through the gospels, and see how many times uh, the, the theme of the kingdom, either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ or uh, the kingdom of heaven, which is a phrase that Matthew uses especially, uh, how often those appear in the Gospels. In Matthew, uh, that idea appears 49 times at least. And the next closest is Luke, which is interesting, written by a Gentile, uh, 37 times. In Mark, 15, and John, only three so that's very interesting. That tells us something about the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're going to see Matthew um, over these, this next series of messages. We're going to see Matthew explaining to us what the kingdom of God is, uh, what, what it means that the kingdom of God has come uh, through Jesus Christ, uh, what its character is, what its implications are. And, and in a kingdom, you necessarily have a king. Uh, What we're going to see, especially in these early chapters of Matthew, chapters one through four, is that Matthew uh, gives us through a series of what I'll what I'll just call entrance episodes. He gives us a series of of different entrances uh, by uh, the Lord Jesus uh, into uh, different aspects of our experience. And each one of those entrance episodes Matthew uses uh, between chapters one and four to show us uh, not only Jesus's credentials as God's king over his people, but also the character, the character of Jesus, and therefore the character of the kingdom he brings. And so this morning, uh, we're looking at the genealogy, which is probably the part of Matthew that you giddy up right through. But it's interesting that this is the way the New Testament opens. And Matthew has done this very deliberately, and it's very beautiful. Because what the genealogy shows us, what I hope to show you this morning, is that 
uh, this uh, genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ has uh, been set uh, out at the very beginning of uh, Matthew's gospel and in the way that the New Testament has been organized for us in the very beginning of the New Testament in such a way that this genealogy shows us already. It's like an overture. In some ways, it's like uh, the prologue to John's gospel in John chapter one, or it's like an overture to a symphony where uh, it's the beginning movement. And what happens is Matthew, just like in John's prologue, is putting out themes and announcing themes and ideas that are going to get developed and unfolded and shown and opened up and dwelt upon. Uh, in the rest of his gospel in a way that's absolutely beautiful. And so this morning, I just want to take three of those themes about the kingdom of God, characteristics about the kingdom of God, which are also necessarily characteristics about Jesus himself, the king. And I just want to think about those with you this morning as uh, we uh, venture into the gospel. And those three characteristics of the kingdom that we're going to look at this morning are that the kingdom is historical, the kingdom is universal, And the kingdom is personal. Kingdom is historical, universal, and personal. Uh, Let's look at the first point. The kingdom is historical. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that Matthew's genealogy shows us uh, very clearly that Christianity is rooted in history, in historical events. Now, uh, this is one of the most important uh, foundations that we have as Christians. And, uh, and we tend to pass over it very uh, quickly, but we shouldn't do that because we live in a world uh, where often uh, Christianity and the Christian gospel are characterized in a way where uh, people who are not Christians outside the church assume the non-historical basis of Christianity. And I would just say this. Uh, we see it in, uh, we talk about this at Easter uh, with respect to our, our Lord's resurrection but it's everywhere in the New Testament. It's unavoidable. If, if Christianity is not based on objective historical events, it's worthless. Christianity never pretends or advertises itself or the Christian gospel never presents itself in a way that isn't rooted in the objective events of history. Uh, What Matthew is telling us, just as one example of this historical rootedness that uh, that Christianity is grounded on and that the New Testament is constantly pulling us back to, uh, just one of the things that Matthew is showing us here in this genealogy is that God has come to inhabit the very same history that you and I inhabit. And he has come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to work. He's entered the history that he made to be made himself in that history and in that history to accomplish a redemption through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in history. He did these things so that a basis, a real basis for salvation can be offered to real sinners who also inhabit history. Christianity is not a myth. It's not just a wonderful story. It's not just a, a whole series of accretions that have grown up around the celebration of the winter solstice. 
Friends, it's the announcement that God has come. God has come because we had not lived according to His design for us. And we were under His judgment because of our sin. And God has come, not in judgment. John 3.17 For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And Matthew's Gospel is the announcement of the good news that God has come to work and accomplish salvation for any and all who would trust in Jesus Christ, not just from Israel, but from all the nations. That's how Christianity begins. And though uh, that salvation is not limited to Israel, uh, Matthew's very clear uh, that this king uh, is rooted in the history of Israel, isn't he? Uh, Jesus is uh, the product, is rooted in, if you will, Israel's history. That's unavoidable. Uh, as we look at this genealogy and Matthew traces uh, Jesus's ancestry. Do you notice from the very beginning, he traces his ancestry all the way back uh, through David uh, to Abraham, who's the, the father of the Jews. And it proves from the very beginning, Jesus, Matthew saying, Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth that I'm going to tell you about is the true Israelite. And Matthew structured the genealogy into three basic groups. The first one goes uh, from verses two through six. And in that uh, stretch, we go from Abraham all the way to David, the king. Now, that's about 700 years or excuse me. That's about eleven hundred years. Roughly about twenty one hundred B.C. to about a thousand B.C. And then the second group that starts in the second half of verse six. And most English Bibles have a paragraph break here when it says, and David was the father of Solomon. That goes from the middle of verse 6 all the way to verse 11. And that's really the story of what happened with the Davidic covenant. You go from David to the exile. That's a painful story. Promise, great promise at the beginning and tremendous failure. And then from verses 12 through 16... Uh, what Matthew's uh, focusing on is then how do we get from the exile in Babylon to the return to the land uh, that started to happen around 538 B.C. And then from there to the birth of Christ. So that's about 550 years. Roughly. Now, why is Matthew telling us this? Um He's telling us this for a variety of reasons. And you might say, why do I need to know this? <laughs> well, there are, a lot of reasons, there are a lot of reasons in answer to that question, too. But let me just try to approach it this way. The reason this matters is because um, Jesus' coming and Jesus' ministry are not the first chapter of a new story. They're really the last chapter of a long-standing story. And if you think about it, uh, you could gain a lot if your strategy in life, your reading strategy in life was to simply pick up the last chapter of every book that you ever put your hands on. You could learn a lot, couldn't you? But there's also a lot that you would deprive yourself of. Because we all know how stories work. 
And we all know that climaxes and the reveals that happen in the last chapter depend in a good story, in a true story, depend upon the things that came before. And that's very true, not just in the Bible as a book, but also in history itself. And Matthew wants us to see that God has been working in history and God has been working through the history, particularly of one people. And he's been working in that history, preparing not just that one people, but really all the nations, preparing all the earth for the coming of his son who would bring the kingdom that God intends to fill the earth. And the opening chapters of that story are in the history of Israel. The Bible's one book, friends. And God has one plan from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation 22. He doesn't change a thing. And Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's history. God has been working in Israel's history for millennia. And what he wants us to see from this genealogy is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Israel's history was designed to point to. We see this in a couple ways. First of all, he says, as I pointed out, that he's Abraham's seed, right? He's the true Israelite. And also in verse 1, that he's the son of David, which means that he's David's promised heir. It means he's a king. That's what the word Christ means in Greek. If you were, uh, went to Bethlehem and you wanted to find Jesus in the phone book, you wouldn't look under C for Christ. Do you know that? Okay. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is the title. Anointed one. And so Jesus is a king in David's line, and he is the seed of Abraham, Abraham's heir. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. There's basically two big lessons in those 39 books. The first one is the failure of man. And that's what the genealogy shows us. If you look at what is, what is the meaning of Israel's history that the genealogy shows us, the first is this, the failure of man. Every branch on Jesus' family tree, if you look closely at it, and you probably were thinking this as I was reading it, every branch on this family tree is broken. Look at, look at Abraham, who twice exposed his wife Sarah to moral peril. And then there's Isaac, who was the son of laughter, who ended his life overseeing a house uh, that was full of bitterness and suspicion. Or Jacob, a manipulative, control freak, schemer. Or Judah, who fathered two sons so wicked, the Lord killed them. And then impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking she was a prostitute. Or Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute. Or David, 
who took all the advantages and the blessings that God gave him, and he returned the fruits of murder and adultery. Or Solomon, who was ruined by the prosperity God gave him. Or Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who, who through his foolish pride triggered the division of the kingdom. Or Uzziah who was a king that God had uh, entrusted a lot of success to, and yet that success went to his head. He became very prideful. And then uh, toward the, the, at the peak of his power, he barged into the temple saying that he didn't care. If he wasn't a priest, he was going to offer incense before the Lord. And the Lord struck him with leprosy. Or what about Hezekiah? Hezekiah, whom the Lord added, to whom the Lord added 15 years of his life, And yet, when Hezekiah had the opportunity to do it, he showed the Babylonian envoys the treasure house of the Lord and cut a secret deal with them, a secret alliance. And it is that alliance that ultimately precipitated the exile and the Babylonian invasion. Or Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, who was so wicked that uh, the Bible says he literally filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood and he... Uh, sacrificed one of his own sons. These are David's heirs. And ultimately where it ends up is the exile, the deportation. Friends, when you look at Israel's history, it's a very sobering thing because man has failed. Despite all the promises, man has failed. Despite all the advantages, man had failed. And yet there's this other strand in Israel's history that is so striking, and it is the faithfulness of God. At the very same time and in the very same history. Do you know how the Old Testament ends? It ends with the book of Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, uh, the prophet Malachi says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. In other words, the Old Testament ends... The culmination of all this history, the failure of man and the faithfulness of God and the culmination of where the Old Testament ends. The last thing we hear at the end of the Old Testament is that God is coming. And he has to come really for two basic reasons. When you look at Israel's history, two things stand out again and again. The farther you go into the Old Testament, the problems get deeper and deeper And deeper and deeper. Every advantage the Lord gives Israel ends up being turned by Israel, squandered by Israel. And you see that those advantages actually just deepen the problems. Greater faithfulness is not what's produced over the history of Israel. Diminished faithfulness is what's produced. And yet, at the very same time in the Old Testament, the very same time what happens over the same course of the story is that God's promises keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So by the time you get in the prophets, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you read the prophets, these, the, 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 the scale of the promises that God is making to his people, God's not shrinking the promises in response to the unfaithfulness of the people. He's opening the promises up. They're absolutely huge. They're bigger than they were before. Now, what are we, how are we supposed to make sense of that? That's a very odd feature of the Old Testament. And the answer 
is really this Malachi 3.1 promise that the Lord himself is going to come. And it's this, that by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, the problems are so great that the only way they can be remedied is if God himself comes not to bring the remedy, but to be the remedy. And the promises are so great by the end of the Old Testament that the only way those promises can ever be fulfilled is if God himself comes not to bring the fulfillment, but to be the fulfillment. And that's what Matthew is reminding us of through the genealogy, that that was the situation and that God has now come in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, between the Testaments, there were a couple of strands in Jewish thinking. And one of them was this, that the reason all the bad stuff had happened to Israel, the reason that they'd been, been sent into exile, the reason that the Alexander the Great and his armies then uh, occupied Palestine, and after Alexander's armies, then the Romans took over uh, the, the, the area of Palestine. The only reason that happened was because Israel had been unfaithful to the law. So there was a very strong strand in intertestamental Jewish thinking that if we call our people back to obeying the law, then God's kingdom will come. And you know what? I totally get that because that's how my heart operates. Isn't that how your heart operates? But you know, Matthew's genealogy shows us exactly the opposite point. Because what Matthew's emphasizing is that the kingdom of God, when it comes, is the gift of God. It comes into the history despite the history. It comes uh, not because man has earned it. It doesn't come because Israel has suddenly reformed and gotten faithful. But God brings his kingdom through his son into the history of his people precisely because his people are incapable of solving the problems or producing or earning the promises that he makes. There's only room for one hero in the history of Israel, and it's Jesus Christ. That's the only room that's left by the end of the Old Testament. And Matthew is announcing to us that he has come. That's really amazing. Because if you think about it, There was no other people in the entire planet who had the accurate knowledge of God entrusted to them that Israel had. You can't look at Israel and say, well, you know, they would have been obedient if they'd only known God a little bit better. If God had given them his scriptures, well, he did. If God had acted on their behalf in history, well, he had for millennia. If God had rescued them Uh, from oppressors. Well, he had. And you see, friends, Israel's story, you may not be Jewish, but Israel's story is your story. It's everyone's story. Because the farther you get into your story, the less reason there is for God's kingdom to come and for you to be a member of it. And the farther you get into the story, the higher and the more glorious are the promises of God. And the only way 
that you or I or anyone in all the earth could ever have membership in God's kingdom and be reconciled to him would be only if he came to do it. If he came to give us the kingdom as a gift, if he came to be the remedy, personally the remedy for our problems, and if he came personally to be the fulfillment of all his own promises. And that's exactly what Jesus represents. Christian gospel is so stunning. Because we offended against God in our sin. And God is so limitlessly holy. There's no flaw in him. God is light, the Apostle John says, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is always faithful. He is always constant. He never lies. He always tells the truth. He's always gracious. He's always compassionate. And against the backdrop of Israel's history, we see those things in God displayed over and over and over again. Those aren't abstractions. Those are real characteristics of God. And yet, in full view of that knowledge, we all rebel against Him. And none of us lives for His glory. And what does God do? Well, He doesn't do what He's entitled to do, which is to scrape the whole thing. Start over. What He does is He comes in and He personally, in His Son, Jesus Christ, assumes all the burdens of the histories that we have produced. And he subjects himself personally, shrinks himself down, as it were, into a virgin's womb so that he can pass through a birth canal and enter our world in exactly the same way that all of us do. And then from that beginning to do the heavy lifting of what it means to be a man who lives to the glory of God. And after doing all that heavy lifting, he himself walks straight to be put under the full weight of our sin and failings on that cross so that none of us have to bear that weight, which we could never bear. And then he raises himself in triumph in his resurrection in history. So that now he can offer to any who will come to him and promise to any who will repent of their sins and trust in him a real salvation. Forgiveness from God, reconciliation with God, membership in the kingdom of God and an inheritance in that kingdom. And Matthew's celebrating that. That's the longest point. The kingdom is historical. And it matters because we're historical. But secondly, the kingdom is universal. And what I mean by that is that Matthew's genealogy shows us very clearly something that's very ironic. You know, if if I was going to take a poll and say, which of the four Gospels is the most overtly Jewish or Old Testament-y? I bet 99% of you would say Matthew. And you'd be right. But what's so interesting about the Gospel of Matthew is the most Jewish Gospel is actually the most universal Gospel. And Matthew shows that to us in the, in the genealogy. It's very powerful. that This genealogy is, is a missional genealogy. It shows us that from the beginning, Jesus, though he comes as God's king to Israel, is sent by God, not just to Israel, but through Israel to the nations. 
And this shows up in a couple of ways. First, uh, Matthew makes sure that we understand that Jesus has Gentile credentials. And he does this mostly in verses 3 through 6, where uh, Jesus mentions, excuse me, Matthew mentions four women and highlights four women out of all these men in uh, Jesus' genealogy. And every single one of them was a Gentile. Uh, first, there's Tamar, verse 3, who was a Canaanite. And then there's Rahab, verse 5, who was a Canaanite. And then there's Ruth, who was a Moabite. And then there's Bathsheba, who was probably a Hittite herself, married to Uriah, who was also a Hittite. And you see what Matthew's doing from the very beginning. He's saying this Messiah, this promised Messiah of Israel from the beginning is, is meant to be the savior of the nations. God had designed his birth line in such a way that Gentiles would be his ancestors. Oh, that's so beautiful. Does that not encourage you? Friends, there's a way of looking at the Bible that treats Israel, ethnic Israel, as the real apple of God's eye and that regards the largely Gentile church as the afterthought of God that God turns to after being jilted by Israel. Oh, my goodness. I cannot I cannot express to you strongly enough how far off the mark that reading of the Bible is. And Matthew's genealogy is just one more piece of proof. When God entered the world, he entered through a line that had Gentiles in it. We're not an afterthought. But even in Jesus' Jewish credentials that Matthew highlights, there is a, a vision of the nations, isn't there? Abraham, what's more quintessentially Uh, Jewish or Israelite than to be a son of Abraham. But remember the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12.3. What's the last promise that God makes to Abraham when he enters into this covenant with Abraham? He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. (laughs) See, it's right there from the beginning. That's vision for the nations. Uh, God's heart uh, the, the vastness of God's love is far too big, far too big. His purposes of redemption, his desire to establish his kingdom are far too big to be confined to Palestine or to elevate one people over against another. No, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then what about David? David, this uh, Jewish king. I mean, what could be more quintessentially Jewish than that, than Israel's king? Well, how about think about Psalm 2, which is the psalm of uh, David's coronation. And in that psalm, verse 8, Psalm 2, verse 8, God says to his anointed king, David, says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your heritage. See, in their foundation, both the covenant with Abraham and covenant with David, are much bigger than Israel. Because God's heart, God's love, God's purposes are bigger than Israel. They're for all the nations. And then you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel and you have the Great Commission where Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, after he's raised from the dead, says, all authority in Palestine has been given to me. All authority in heaven and here within the borders of Israel. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the nations and make disciples. 
That's Matthew's gospel. That's the other bookend of Matthew's gospel. The kingdom isn't just historical. It's also universal. And that has implications for us. Friends, it means that if we're part of God's kingdom, we can't overlook the nations. And I thank God for Darren. And I thank God for his gift of of Darren's ministry to us to remind us of the nations, to keep our focus on the nations. And we're getting close to the end of the year. And at the beginning of the year, we trusted God with our faith promise promises. Friends, participate in the character of God's kingdom. Make sure that you care about the universal character of this kingdom that God has brought and has grafted you and I into in such a way that you support the work of bringing this news of Jesus' coming to the nations. Finally, the kingdom is not only historical, it's not only universal, uh, reaching the nations, it's also personal. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. That Matthew's genealogy shows us that the kingdom of God isn't about a cause. It's about a person. Who's a king. And how we respond to that person. The genealogy is about much more than um, Jesus' origins. It's really about his character. And I realize it's a little harder to access than your typical um, New Testament passage if you want to learn about Jesus' character, but it is jam-packed with a beautiful uh, disclosures of the kind of king that Jesus is. Because uh, what the genealogy shows us is that Jesus' character as a king is a function of what he did. What does the genealogy show us that Jesus did? Well, what it reminds us of is that when God uh, brought his uh, kingdom to earth through his son, Jesus' coming, he was willing to dive into a very dark and a very deep and a very poisoned stream. When God brought his kingdom on the earth, he didn't bring it in a way that bypassed the darkness of the world. He came. When he came, he dove. He came down. And this is what the genealogy shows us. He, he, he dove all the way to the bottom of a very deep and dark stream that was full of the poison of sin. And he kept diving and kept going lower and lower and lower his entire earth. He dove all the way to Calvary. That's what Matthew's genealogy is preparing us for. We think it's amazing enough for the eternal God to be enclosed within a virgin's womb. It is amazing. It is mind-cracking open amazing. But friends, that's just the opening movement for God Himself to place Himself under His own judgment against our sins. That is amazing. 
And already, remember I said that the genealogy is like an overture where these themes are being introduced and these themes of what God was willing to do in the person of his son, willing to come all the way down and to keep going, to dive, to disappear from the light and to, to go under, to keep diving down all the way to Calvary until all the weight of the world's darkness was above him and on him. And he was judged in our place on the cross. That he was willing to enter that line, to be grafted in to that failed line of kings, to be grafted into that failed line of humanity where we had squandered the glory of God, to be buried. It was a line that had been buried for centuries in the chaos of the exile and the return. It was, it was buried so deep under the debris of Israel's unfaithfulness that men had lost track of it. But God never did. God never lost track of His promise. God never lost track of His purposes. It didn't matter that man had. See, and it still doesn't. Because God has his promises firmly in hand. And the genealogy shows us that no sin of man can overpower the triumph of Christ. No sin of man is strong enough to conquer the love and righteousness of God. Friends, you realize that what Matthew's genealogy means is not just that this king is a king unlike any other king. It was worthy of your love and worthy of your devotion and worthy of your deepest allegiance. But friends, it means that anyone can come into his kingdom. You see, you look at this genealogy and you say, wait a second, wait a second. There's failure after failure, unfaithfulness after unfaithfulness, and he still comes. He still comes. means anyone can come. It means that his credentials are such as a king that he can save anyone. You know, I can imagine that this was a very uh, personal point for Matthew. I was thinking a lot about two people this week as I was uh, thinking about the genealogy. I was thinking about Matthew. And we're going to see when we get to chapter 9 that Matthew was a tax collector. That's pretty hard in first century Israel to identify a more despised character than the tax collectors who collaborated with the Romans. Who betrayed, essentially, their own people for profit. And I just thought about how somebody like that would take delight in this genealogy. (laughs) Seeing the depths to which Jesus was willing to go in order uh, to bring God's kingdom and to bring it to people uh, who, who had not produced lives of righteousness. And I thought, you know, I bet Matthew was encouraged by that. I hope you're encouraged by that. I am. And then what about Mary? She's the other one I thought about. You know, she... She was trailed her entire life. We'll start thinking about her uh, next week. But she was trailed her entire life by rumors and scandal and misunderstanding. 
what delight she must have taken, like Matthew, in the details of what this genealogy shows us about Christ and his heart uh, for the outcast and for sinners. It's a beautiful picture of the kind of king that Jesus is. And friends, what it means is two things. There's a promise of a new beginning. And there's the call to allegiance. The promise of the new beginning. Um, What Matthew's showing us is that Jesus is the new beginning of humanity. Uh, We don't see it in our English translations, but in verse 1, the word that's translated genealogy, the book of the genealogy, is literally in the Greek. This is how it would read. Book of Genesis. And what Matthew's saying is something about more than just the origins of Jesus Christ in a human sense. What he's saying is he's very deliberately trying to echo Genesis 1 and saying God is beginning a new work in the person of Jesus Christ. He's beginning a new line of humanity. Jesus was willing to graft himself into the failed line. And to assume all the consequences of that failed line, which he ultimately did at the cross and offers that assumption to you and I this morning to be embraced. He was willing to be grafted into our line so that now from that new beginning forward, if we will entrust our past, present and future to him, we will be grafted into this new line that he has founded, a line in which his faithfulness to God is triumphant and we benefit from all that he has done and accomplished friends that's what this genealogy calls you and me to it is the call to be grafted into Jesus's line and that happens when you and I repent of the sins that caused his coming and that caused his death that sent him down to the bottom of the dirty stream And when we trust in the triumph of his death and resurrection over those sins. When he rose in triumph and broke the surface again. So friends, he's come and he gives the kingdom as a gift. May every heart prepare him room. Let's pray. Lord, Make room, make more room in our hearts for your reign. We pray in your name. Amen.